Good evening and welcome to Navara Live. My name is Aaron Stani. And taking a break from haunting the nightmares of Jacob Rees-Mogg is the one and only Michael Walker. Michael, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for that introduction. Very sweet. It's true, Michael. We had a great clip from last Friday's show. It's done phenomenally well. If people don't know what I'm talking about, which is very few of you because it's gone viral. Tonight we are discussing Suella Braverman and the government's illegal migration bill, a truly shocking story that involves a Tory backbencher. A renegade dissident rejoins the Labour Party and one of the world's wealthiest people goes to war with the BBC. First story. The government's illegal migration bill has been widely briefed to the press for days. And that was before it was announced. But today was the day that Home Secretary Suella Braverman announced the new legislation in Parliament. This morning, the right-wing press was triumphant. This is the Sun's front page. No entry. Small boat migrants banned from today. And the Express, well, they went with this. Suella, back law to stop boats or betray Britain. When the time came for Braveman to present the bill, it turned out to be just as horrific as the right-wingers had hoped. Here's Braveman with the top lines. This bill enables detention of illegal arrivals without bail or judicial review within the first 28 days of detention until they can be removed. It puts a duty on the Home Secretary to remove illegal entrants and will radically narrow the number of challenges and appeals that can suspend removal. Only those under 18, medically unfit to fly, or at a real risk of serious and irreversible harm, an exceedingly high bar in the country we are removing them to, will be able to delay their removal. Any other claims will be heard remotely after removal. And when we stop the boats, Mr Speaker, the bill will introduce an annual cap to be determined by Parliament on the number of refugees the UK will settle via safe and legal routes. This will ensure an orderly system, considering local authority capacity for housing, public services and support. So what do we have there? Detention without trial, check. Rapid removal to a third country, check. Treating asylum seekers as unequal before the laws of the land, check. And a cap on the numbers of asylum seekers, irrespective of unforeseen wars, natural disasters or catastrophes. It also doesn't matter if you were brought to the UK against your will. When our Modern Slavery Act passed, the impact assessment envisaged 3,500 referrals a year. Last year, 17,000 referrals took on average 543 days to consider. Modern slavery laws are being abused to block removals. That's why we granted more than 50% of asylum requests from citizens of a safe European country and NATO ally, Albania. That's why this bill disqualifies illegal entrants from using modern slavery rules to prevent removal. It's hard to know what Braverman's evidence for that claim of abuse is. The Home Office, her very department, decides modern slavery claims. And in 2021, the latest year that we have complete data for, 91% of the decisions in cases hearing a modern slavery claim were positive. 91%. In the first half of 2022, 97% of those cases were positive. Alyssa McCaffrey is head of the Gangmasters Labour Abuse Authority. They're funded by the Home Office. 
In October last year, she told The Guardian, quote, we don't see people gaming the system. That's not our experience. What we see is vulnerable people who are being exploited by opportunists and criminals. Of course, that's not the kind of thing Breverman would like the public to know. So instead, she's ramping up the rhetoric around the bill with this implausible claim. In the face of today's global migration crisis, yesterday's laws are simply not fit for purpose. So to anyone proposing de facto open borders through unlimited safe and legal routes as the alternative, let's be honest, there are 100 million people around the world who could qualify for protection under our current laws. Let's be clear, they are coming here. That's a pretty big swing, one that The Guardian's Home Affairs editor quickly debunked. Will 100 million asylum seekers head for Britain without her bill, as Suella Breverman claims? UK was 16 out of 28 euro countries' destination of choice for asylum seekers per capita, that's per head, in 2021. Germany took 190,000, France 120,000, Spain took 62,000, Italy 53,000, as you can see there, UK bottom of the large European countries with 50,000. Yes, it's not likely that we'll be going from 50,000 asylum seekers to 100 million anytime soon. If it passes, Breverman's bill looks likely to contravene Britain's commitments under the UN Refugee Convention, not to mention our own Human Rights Act. This is Tory MP Marc Francois, chair of the European Research Group, raising the issue of the European Court of Human Rights. I warmly welcome the principle of the bill, not least as the whole House knows these people traffickers are immoral and utterly harmless. But the elephant in the room, as has already been alluded to, is the ECHR. Unless we can somehow face them down, we will remain tied up in legal knots in our own domestic courts and ultimately in Strasbourg. So can the Home Secretary assure the House that when we see the bill, it will contain specific measures to do that so that the bill will achieve its purpose. My right friend is right to highlight the legal complexity of this issue. There will be measures relating to Rule 39 orders, and I refer him to a disapplication of Section 3 of the Human Rights Act, and that sends a message to the judiciary about how uh, Parliament intends for this bill, uh, this Act of Parliament subsequently, to be interpreted in the courts. It's since been revealed that what Braverman called legal complexity is actually likely to be straightforward law-breaking. The Times reports this. In a leaked letter to MPs, the Home Secretary, Swella Breverman, said while the government was confident the bill was compatible with international law, she admitted the new legislation was more likely than not to be in breach of the European Convention on Human Rights. But despite the threat of a legal challenge, she said the only way to stop the boats was to make clear, clear that if you arrive here illegally, you're not going to be able to stay here. So what did Labour's Yvette Cooper make of the bill? Well, she seemed less concerned with its morality and the ethics of the whole thing than with its implementation. 
We need serious action to stop dangerous boat crossings which are putting lives at risk and undermining border security. And that is why Labour has put forward plans for a cross-border police unit for fast-track decisions and returns to clear the backlog and end hotel use and a new agreement with France and other countries. But instead, today's statement is Groundhog Day. The Home Secretary has said anyone who arrives illegally will be deemed inadmissible and either returned to the country they arrive from or a safe third country. Only that wasn't this Home Secretary. It was the last one. And that wasn't this bill. It was the last one, passed only a year ago, which did not work. And as part of last year's bill, the Home Office considered 18,000 people as inadmissible for the asylum system because they had travelled through safe third countries, but because they had no return agreements in place, just 21 of them were returned. That is not 0.1%. The other 99.9% just carried on, often in hotels, at an extra cost of £500 million. And it didn't deter anyone. Even more boats arrived. So what is different this time? They still don't have any return agreements in place. The Home Secretary herself has admitted Rwanda is failing, and even if it gets going, it will only take a few hundred people. So what will happen to the other 99% of people under this bill? Now, she says she's going to detain them all, maybe for 28 days. She could tell us how many detention centres they will need and how much that will cost. But even if she does, what will happen when people leave 28-day detention? Will she make people destitute, so they just wander the streets in total chaos, torture victims, Afghan interpreters, families with children, or will she put them into indefinite taxpayer-funded accommodation? Never returned anywhere because they don't have the agreements with Europe in place, neither returned nor given sanctuary, never having their case resolved. Just forever, in asylum accommodation and hotels, she may not call it the asylum system, but thousands more people are still going to be in it nevertheless. It was left to Labour's Diane Abbott instead to make the humane case. As the child of migrants, can I assure the Home Secretary how much I deplore her seeking to smear migrants as a whole as criminals and rapists? And can I also assure the House that I will never vote for legislation that would have led to my parents being detained and dumped in Rwanda. And can she tell the House, she talks about detention and deportation, where is she going to detain these people? There is not the capacity to detain these numbers of people. And in terms of deportation, the only arrangement we have is with Rwanda, Rwanda has told us they can only take 200 people. Her tone, her legislation, her proposed actions are deplorable and unworkable. And even at this late stage, can she reconsider? With respect to the right on the lady, it is wrong and frankly naive and inflammatory to conflate people who come here legitimately, abiding by our laws, 
uh, and come here on a legal basis. And those who are coming here, breaking our laws illegally and putting themselves and others at risk. I urge her to, to, to choose her words carefully. Meanwhile, Amnesty International had this to say about the bill. Attempting to disqualify people's asylum claims en masse, regardless of the strength of their case, is a shocking new low for the government. There is nothing fair, humane, or even practical in this plan. And it's frankly chilling to see ministers trying to remove human rights protections for a group of people whom they've chosen to scapegoat for their own failures. Ministers need to focus on the real issue, which is the urgent need to fairly and efficiently decide asylum claims while urgently introducing accessible schemes so people seeking asylum do not have to rely on people smugglers and dangerous journeys. Michael, we knew this policy was coming and it's clearly a play given the Tories' poor polling numbers. But what do you think the political impact will be? Do you think this will shift the, the mood around the country? Do you think the Conservatives stand to gain electorally from it? Presumably the reason they're doing it is because they've done some research. And I mean, I mean, I've seen people sort of say that public attitudes towards migration have improved significantly since Brexit. I think that's probably true. I think this is less about a, po a, a policy which is going to be popular with the general public and more a, po a policy which is going to be popular with certain people they are trying to, to you know, consider as key voters who will be essential for keeping some of their seats that they won in 2019. The key thing to say about this is just how, how pathetic it is, really. I mean... We are talking about going against the Refugee Convention from 1952. So that's the idea that if someone is seeking asylum, they have a right to go into a country and have their claim assessed. Right? We're saying we're scrapping that. Now, there has been more than 70 years right, between that Refugee Convention being put into place and now. And there have been so many humanitarian crises where you've had lots of refugees. And there have been so many countries who have been very close to those um, crises and have had hundreds of thousands or millions of refugees arrive in sort of two or three years, right? So countries which were put under much bigger strain than we have. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of more migration than we already have. I think it enriches communities. I think we should have solidarity with people in, in war zones. But clearly, um, migration also brings with it some strains. And what the, the Tory party appear to be saying here is that the strains are so great on the UK that we have to take really, really drastic action and leave the European Convention on Human Rights, which only Russia and Belarus have done, and leave the UN Convention on, on Refugees. Now, I don't think it would be justified for any country to say they're going to do that, but for it to just be some little island that's getting way fewer refugees than any other of its neighbours, and way, way fewer refugees than, say, a country such as Lebanon, which is right next to conflict zones, what does it say about our country that with, with 50,000 people applying for asylum or whatever it is, we say, we can't handle this. We're going to be the first ones to break international law that, that's been around for 70 years. What does it say about us if, if, if having a quarter of the number of, of, of asylum applications as Germany means that we say, oh no, we've, we've got to rip up the UN convention, which has been in place since 1952. It's just, it's just incredibly sad, I think. In terms of the electoral sort of consequences of this. Do you think the Tories look at, say, reform, which for people who are listening or watching are not familiar with reform, you know, it's a it's, it's the remnants of UKIP and the Brexit party, but they're trying to continue on sort of socially conservative issues on migration, etc. A war on woke. Lots of polling has, you know, reform on six, seven, even eight percent. I think one had them on 10 percent, but I, there are outliers, of course. But the point is that they're polling consistently 
half decent numbers. Do you think the Tories look at that and say, look, the first thing we have to do in order to be able to get at least a hung parliament in 2024, 2025 is to eat into that reform vote? Do you think this is kind of a, this is a prerequisite for them? Because I, I saw before we went on air, Rishi Sunak uh, making a quick address. There's nothing really substantial in it, but um, they just had a three word catchphrase, stop the boats. And you can see how that can mobilize 35% of the electorate in the next election, can't you? I think it's just a distraction in a way. Um, and, I, you know, again, I see commentators quite reasonably saying, you know, it's a strange political move to um, really up the salience of an issue which the Tories aren't really in a position to to solve. Right. So, so it, it's going to be very difficult for them to stop the boats because, you know, they don't seem to, you know, I'm not sure they would follow through with leaving the European Convention on Human Rights. and the only way to stop the boat or, the, or their plan to stop the boats, which, you know, they don't want to increase safe routes, would be um, to to take incredibly drastic action such as that. So unless they're willing to do that, and I don't think they want to fight the next election on, like, we are def definitively going to leave the European Human Rights Convention, then it it's going to be difficult for them to solve this one. And so people have said, so why, why are they talking about a problem they can't solve? There will still be being people crossing the channel at the time of the next general election. Why are they making this pledge they can't keep? And I think the answer is because there's, there's no pledge they can keep, right? So they've got to talk about something. Now, they could talk about the NHS, but there's no way they can fix the NHS in the next year and a half because the problems in the NHS are, you know, are they have been built up for over a decade. You've got a shortage of staff. You've got poor management because they deinvested in all of that. You've got terrible capital stock. You've got hospitals which are falling down. None of that you can fix between now and the next general election. So you can't fix the NHS. You can't fix the economy. Now, inflation will fall from where it is now, but prices will still be higher. Wages will still be stagnant relative to prices. You know, th there is no way that any of the problems they would like to sort of highlight that people might care about, they can solve. They can't solve this one either. It's better to be talking about a conflict with the European um, courts than it is to be talking about the NHS, where it's, you know, everyone understands that with the NHS, the problem is that the Tories underinvested in it. I suppose when it comes to... Um, refugee and asylum policy, there are going to be lots of different people that have different interpretations of, of, of why this problem is, is taking place. They can plausibly, break, you know, I don't think it's correct, but they can plausibly blame foreign courts or human rights lawyers. And when it comes to the NHS, another problem they can't solve, who, who can they blame for that other than themselves? I, I think it's probably that of the many problems they can highlight, which they can't solve, this is the one they think is least damaging to themselves. Next story. Politics can be brutal and politicians engage in internal manoeuvring all of the time. I scratch your back and you scratch mine sums up how most things work in Westminster. After all, we have a two-party system which rewards loyalty over everything else. But the latest story to emerge from the lockdown files based on private WhatsApp messages between Matt Hancock and various colleagues, advisors and journalists pushes that ethos well beyond the realms of decency. According to the Telegraph, Hancock discussed blocking funds for a, and get this, new centre for disabled children and adults in order to pressure a dissenting colleague so they would back new lockdown restrictions. The messages were between then Health Secretary Mr Hancock and his political aide Alan Nixon as they discussed taking a plan for a learning disability hub in Bury, Greater Manchester, quote, off the table if James Daly, the MP for Bury North, sided against the government in a key parliamentary vote on lockdown. The Telegraph even has screenshots. 
Alan Nixon. This is the advisor to Hancock. I think we need to dangle our top asks over some of these 2019 intake MPs who are going off the boil this coming week. Thoughts on me suggesting to Chief Spad that they give us a list of the 2019 intakes thinking of rebelling. So there will be a spreadsheet, so to speak, of the potential ways they could get these guys. E.G. James wants his learning disability hub in Berry. Whips call him up and say, health team want to work with him to deliver this, but that will be off the table if he rebels. Alan Nixon goes on to say, these guys' re-election hinges on us in lots of instances, and we know what they want. We should seriously consider using it IMO. Matt Hancock, yes, 100%. James Daly's Bury constituency is the most marginal in the UK mainland. It has a majority of just 105. Daly told The Telegraph he was appalled and disgusted by the messages, but that he had also never been contacted by the party's chief whip, over the issue. It's also important to say he voted against the government's proposals on COVID tears. He told The Telegraph this, they were never proposing to give it to me. I still don't have it. That sounds very typical of the Tories, doesn't it? Even though I've repeatedly campaigned for it, Hancock never showed the slightest bit of interest in supporting it. I had a number of conversations with Hancock at the time, but I can definitively say the hub was never mentioned. I think it is appalling. The fact that they would only give a much-needed support for disabled people if I voted for this was absolutely disgusting. Jake Berry, the Conservative MP for Rossendale and Darwin, reacted to the story by saying this on Twitter. This is an absolute disgrace. Hancock should be dragged to the bar of the House of Commons. I presume he doesn't mean Strangers Bar, where they drink pints, some of them far too many. First thing tomorrow morning to be questioned on this. Hashtag Hancock. And here was Jonathan Gullis, another Tory MP, discussing the matter with Talk TV. Any WhatsApp groups you're in you want to tell us about? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm waiting to see uh, what Matt and I exchanged in text messages because I changed my phone. Uh, so I've lost all my previous messages. So I hope maybe Matt Hancock will be able to shed light on what boring <laughs> conversations we have with each other. But I mean, what a disgrace yeah. uh, to see the attitude in which he displayed. James Daly is one of the finest parliamentarians I've seen in the House since yeah. being elected in 2019. Successfully campaigned for Gig Lane to get the funding it needs so that fantastic football stadium remains at a heartbeat to the community. And to see the callous disregard for what he has worked so hard for his community on with the disability hub and to be used as a weapon is appalling. I've never in my time as being a parliamentarian had any such threats, neither has James clearly based on what he has said, but the fact that those type of conversations gone behind the scenes is wrong. Parliamentarians work damn hard, they get community support, they make the business cases and I hope Matt Hancock does the right thing and apologises to James for even considering that as an option. He doesn't deserve it and I'm very sorry because I'm sure he's having a terribly tough day today yeah. with this being on the front page of the Telegraph. Michael, is this something to get worked up about? Obviously, a special needs centre being used as a political pawn is awful. It's about as bad as it gets. But is this just lifting the curtain on how politics as usual functions at Westminster? Yeah, I mean, it is. And I mean, also, I mean, the biggest story in a way here is that the Learning Disability Centre was never going to get built anyway. I mean, you know, they've spoken to this MP. The MP said this wasn't actually used as a bargaining chip, but I've never got it in any case, right? So, I mean, I think what's going on here is the Telegraph are trying to make out that the campaign to get people to vote for a lockdown was more brutal than any other um, sort of legislative campaign by by a sitting government. And therefore, that makes lockdown a less legitimate policy than all the various other laws that, that a government would pass. But this is, you know, part of the course, right? It's kind of to be expected. It doesn't necessarily make it pretty. And I think, you know, this is probably a reason why you want to have 
a slightly different electoral system. You have proportional representation and you don't necessarily have majority government where you can have law and policy made by party leaders bullying MPs. And that's you know, all, all they really need to do to get laws passed. I think it would be better if you had to have a sort of persuasive process between people who are representing different parties and then potentially these whips would have slightly less power than they currently do. So I, I think there is an argument as to how one could remove um, the power of the whips in instances such as this. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm still yet to see a single surprise in these lockdown files from from the Telegraph. And especially I think that's because, you know, a lot of what is being done in these WhatsApp groups is sort of consider stuff, right? Lots of it isn't particularly thought through. Like in this case, they didn't threaten this guy and say, we're not going to build this center in your constituency if you don't vote with us. You know, in, in fact, it seems as if they've never mentioned this center to him at all. He's been asking them for it and they've been ignoring him, which is you know part of the cause for the conservatives. I mean, it's also... You know, it's, it, it's not a particularly healthy situation if where you build a learning difficulty centre is in, you know, the whim of the national government. And they can just put it in the constituency as a gift to any old MP. This is why it's really important to actually properly fund local authorities, because they're going to be the people who are actually pretty well placed to decide what infrastructure a local community needs. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, the background to this story is over a decade of Tory austerity, where you've got MPs desperately begging central government for things which should be standard in any constituency in any community but now you know they have to go begging to to the central government to say well the local council can't afford this so can, can you please swoop in and and gift our community a basic service i think that's disgusting i think that sort of legislative wrangling is or, or the expose let's say of this legislative wrangling is is you know the telegraph essentially trying to cause trouble about a policy they've never liked i think that's right but what you said earlier as well about how this sums up conservatives. I mean, it is extraordinary that a key piece of, of health infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure, the health secretary only thinks about it as a, as a way of effectively threatening a colleague. You know, it's not about, okay, how do we do it? How do we deliver? How do we build it? How do we project manage it? How do we help people? No, it's just a bargaining chip to exert pressure on somebody. That's how they view everything. And it's terrifying. And also the thing, you, the comment you said about the, the role of the whip, you know, we hear so much in the media about, oh, bullying and harassment, our momentum of bullying people in politics. The biggest bullies in British politics are the chief whips. And that's not some conspiracy theory. It's not something I've just like, you know, clutched out of my brain. That is literally their role. They maintain discipline through a coordinated, permanent 24-7, 365 campaign of bullying, intimidation, and threats against their colleagues. Very few people overtly say that in legacy media because, of course, they need to be on good terms with many of these people to, to, to do their jobs. Uh, but it, I think that the power of this story is, it, like I said at the start, it lifts a lid on politics as usual, this one in particular. Um, there's nothing special or extraordinary or outrageous about it. Of course, this is outrageous, but the point is, that's the norm. Next story. Four years ago, a group of dissenting Labour MPs left the party to start the centrist, so-called, Change UK. At the time, they claimed they were doing so because of anti-Semitism and Brexit. Indeed, they said as much in their founding statement on their website, although that has since been taken down. One of them was Mike Gapes, a lifelong Labour man who joined the party age 16. To say that Mr Gapes is a career politician is something of an understatement. 
1977. He was the party's first national student organiser and worked at Labour Party HQ for 15 years until 1992. He then became the Labour MP for Ilford South. But after leaving the party in 2019 and then standing against it in a general election, Mike Gapes has now rejoined Labour. He explained his reasons in the Times newspaper. I was horrified by the state of the party. The traditional Labour values I've always held dear of social justice, security and internationalism had been forgotten, replaced by a purity cult that would soon enough prove itself to be repellent to the British public. But the truth is I didn't leave Labour. Labour left me. It also left the millions of mainstream, moderate people that make up the backbone of this country and have always been the core of Labour's vote. So that's why he left, but why is he back? Gapes continues. Today, I'm more enthusiastic about the party's future than I have been in years. I'm as determined to see it win and as excited as when I first joined as a 16-year-old boy in Chigwell, Essex, 54 years ago. The change in the past few years has been profound. The Labour Party is back on track. Watching from the outside, I've been incredibly impressed by the way Keir Starmer has relentlessly focused on making it once again a patriotic, serious party of mainstream Britain. On the big issues facing the country, Labour is once again aligned with the British public rather than special interests. Whether it's strong fiscal rules and respect for the taxpayers' money, uh, the plans to bring quality jobs of the future to towns and cities across the country, the desperately needed investment in education, health and social care, and reform of public services, or the patriotic and international internationalist foreign policy, it is clear that Labour is a party worth voting for again. Mike Gape seems to know a lot more about Labour's policy agenda than the rest of us, it seems. Party leader Keir Starmer responded to the news of Mike Gapes rejoining with this tweet. That Mike has rejoined our party shows how much we've changed our party to face the public, root out anti-Semitism, support business, be proud of our NATO membership. I know there is much more to do so we can change our country and deliver our missions for a better Britain. Incredible, isn't it? Mike Gapes, he worked for the party his entire life. He worked at headquarters 15 years. He was a student organizer. He was an MP. Apparently, this guy represents the average person, Joe Bloggs, walking down the street. It's important to say in that tweet that Starmer equates uh, supporting business with opposing anti-Semitism, though Mike and Keir never seem to have started a business of their own. Is this the same as being a racist? Who thinks that? The leader of the opposition, apparently. There's also a word which nobody is mentioning, certainly not Mike Gapes. It wasn't in his op-ed or in Keir Starmer's tweet. Can you guess what it is? starts to be. I'm talking about Brexit, of course. Now, personally, I find that strange, given that when Mike Gapes left the party four years ago, he literally said he was, quote, furious that the Labour leadership is complicit in facilitating Brexit. He was furious, furious, right in the face, although he's that all the time, so maybe that wasn't a giveaway. So furious that he left to join Change UK and voted against a customs union and various soft Brexits in the House of Commons. And he's now rejoined a party that is committed to not joining the single market. Stum has even said he will back Sunak's Brexit deal. Is Mike Gape still furious, I wonder? The story of how people who claim to want to stop Brexit actually helped guarantee the hardest possible version is mind-bending. 
from Change UK to the Liberal Democrats, they voted down every single compromise on Brexit, everyone. That meant that the only thing left was the hardest Brexit of all, which is what Keir Starmer is now supporting, and which is presumably one reason why Mike Gapes is so enthusiastic. Michael, this whole thing was a giant con job, wasn't it? We said it at the time, Michael. We didn't want to be right about this, but when they said this is all about Brexit, promise, turns out, had nothing to do with it. The cynicism of it is just unreal. Like, I can't believe how normal it has become in British politics to see this sort of triplet of it is now a party which roots out anti-Semitism, supports business and supports NATO. Like everyone's sort of, sort of, everyone reads that tweet and is supposed to think that's, that's normal. Like the, the, these are now sort of like the three things which are completely comparable. You know, racism is bad and socialism is bad and anti-imperialism is bad. And they're all equally bad. Um, and these are all things which Keir Starmer has very, very successfully um, pushed out of the Labour Party. This seems, it, it, it makes it seem like potentially um, their big hoo-ha about racism wasn't necessarily as sincere as many people and many credulous journalists have made it out to be. And I think this point about Brexit is, is super important as well. As you say, when Change UK was formed, yeah, they made it a little bit about anti-Semitism. I think they made it more about Brexit because they thought that that would take more, more votes to them. There are more people um, at the time who they presumed would be willing to break away from the Labour Party because they opposed Brexit. That was a, a bigger electoral issue than the anti-Semitism row, whatever you think of it, right? So, so that was the big thing they led on when they left. But now, because Keir Starmer has suddenly done a complete 180 when it comes to Brexit, it, it's gone out the window and suddenly business and NATO have been inserted, things which weren't particularly talked about at the time. So it's, it's this complete pick and choose where people are completely able to rewrite history. I remember what these people did as well after they became Change UK MPs. They became Change UK MPs, lost an election. Um, sorry, they became Lib Dem. They, they ended up changed. I forget whatever party they were in when it came to 2019. They all lost their, less, lost, lost their elections as Lib Dems, I think. And they all went and worked for PR consultancies. Um, and, you know, obviously complete careerists. That's their trajectory. But the media look at them all as if sort of like, oh, no, these are legitimate, brave voices of uh, the opposition to anti-Semitism, the support of business and the support of NATO. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? This is so weird. Right. And <laughs> it's just it's just incredibly embarrassing. I try not to think about it too much because I don't like to get too annoyed about things I can't really change. But like so I, I, I try not to make my political identity like hating these people. But. Whenever it does get brought up, it, it, it's difficult for it not to drive you mad. I think, yeah, the, um, the hypocrisy is incredible. And, and it's important to say, like you said, Michael, they didn't just go to Change UK. Luciana Berger, Chuck Romana, a few others went to Lib Dems. And then they go, went to go for like Edelman and like big PR companies and stuff. And the reason why the media doesn't attack these guys is because, let's be real, they go for dinner with them. They're friends with them. They went to university with them. Their kids go to the same schools. It's a club. It's several thousand people in London controlling all of it. And if you don't want to be friends with those guys, like Michael and me, it doesn't mean we're not nice people. It just means we want to actually serve our audience and get to the facts of the matter. Well, then you're in trouble. Then you're not a credible, legitimate person in the British media. Michael, I want to ask you a question now because we talked about Gapes. Clearly, look, he said in his statement, this is about Brexit. I'm furious about Brexit. And now he hasn't mentioned it once in the Times piece, once, right? It's not like he's dialed it down. It's not mentioned. Does the same apply for Starmer's own positioning on Brexit? 
because this genuinely strikes me as further evidence that Starmer's politicking was about ruining his party's chances of winning the 2019 election. It's so brazen here with Gapes. It does make me reconsider with Starmer. Was this a wrecking strategy from the inside? I personally think it was. What are your thoughts? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I really don't know about this one. I mean, I, I think with Change UK and those guys, what they were very much trying to do was explicitly to sort of increase the salience of the Brexit issue to undermine Corbyn. Like Keir Starmer, because also, you know, by, by 2019, after those European elections and before the general election in 2019, even I thought, you know, Labour have been leading on the Remainers for such a long time by saying, we will leave a second referendum on the table Right. If, if you've led people on for that long, the salience of it has got so high, it's difficult then not to sort of follow through on what you've been hinting at for years. The, my big issue with the People's Vote people was their attempt from 2017 onwards to massively increase the salience of, of, of Brexit. And my big issue with, with Corbyn and, and McDonnell and all of them, in fact, was not so much that they ended up going for the People's Vote in 2019. It was that they didn't nip this thing in the bud in 2017. Right. They should have said, of course, we are not going to have a second referendum. Of course, we have to get used to, to Brexit. And we have to you know, proactively argue for some kind of soft Brexit. Instead, what they did was sort of say, well, we might do, we might not. Oh, who knows, who knows? But we're, we're, we're going to lead you on, you hardcore remainers, instead of nipping it in the bud. And I, I feel in a way, I mean, it's difficult to say with Keir Starmer. I mean, I, I think he was probably going with where the wind blew. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that it was so far sort of, for, for, I, I think probably it was more about him wanting to win the membership to replace Jeremy Corbyn. I think he probably thought that Labour were inevitably going to lose the next election anyway, right? And 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 that um, pre pledge to say let's have a second referendum was because he wanted the the Remain supporting no, exactly to, to back him. Exactly, it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a political position designed for a Labour government to implement in power. I, I really don't think that it was about like you say his own internal jockeying. Um, and also, I think rec for him to become leader, obviously, the other guy has to go first. Mm. And I think it was very much, I don't think he didn't believe in it. I think he would rather Britain stays in the EU. I think that's totally true. But it was very much, you know, heads I win, tails you lose kind of situation. Um, and you can see this from, you know, the fact that Angela Smith, who, by the way, is a, she's a water, she's a lobbyist for the private water industry, the, the most hated privatized utility we have right now, given they dump excrement and feces into rivers and and uh, coastlines on a daily basis in this country. The fact that Angela Smith can go on national television and say to our colleague Ash Sarkar here at Navarra Media that she's a, a funny tinge and she can be welcomed back into the Labour Party, no problem. Well, Mike Gapes here, he rejoins and Keir Stummer does a tweet. Thanks for joining, Mike. But hold on, when it comes to Jeremy Corbyn, when it comes to the, the people you dislike, you say, we're going to have a, you know, this is a complaints process, disciplinary process, has nothing to do with me, Gov. When it's Mike Gapes, so, you know, he's, he's, he's getting out the pom-pom, setting off some fireworks, opening the champagne. It seems very strange to me, Michael, on the one hand to say, we have this very, you know, impartial, uh, non-judgmental disciplinary process, except for the people I like, in which case it doesn't apply at all. Again, do you think that whole thing about having an impartial disciplinary process, it's kind of revealed to be rather daft, isn't it? When you see the leader of the opposition celebrating the return of somebody who literally stood against the Labour Party in the last general election. About whether Neil Coyle is going to be let back in. And he, he is literally someone who, when he was suspended from the party, that was because of allegations of racism by a journalist, you know, no less. 
it wasn't just by a factional opponent who was saying you've been racist. It was a journalist who said you were racist to me in Parliament, right? And now it seems as if this guy, I mean, there is at least a little bit of pushback with this one. Um, I suppose because the, the victim was a journalist, I think that probably makes a difference when it comes to the lobby's willingness to basically say, oh, it's the Labour right, so let's just let them get away with it. Because this was one of the few um, situations where it was a journalist who was concerned. There might be a bit more friction there, but it's clear that those at the top of the Labour Party do want to open the way for Neil Coyle to return. That's why we're hearing so many noises about it. And it, I mean, it was, it was always a joke. I mean, no one in the Labour Party cares really about fair processes, right? No faction really cares about fair process when it comes to the Labour Party. There'll, there'll be some, there'll be a few people sort of stuck in the middle who really do, but they're never going to be the people that have much power in the party. They will always end up being tools of the people who want to use disciplinary processes towards factional means. Now, this, this doesn't mean that every disciplinary decision is to try and beat the right. Like I think when the Labour left were in power, lots of disciplinary decisions were made because they thought, well, we have to make this disciplinary decision so that we don't get attacked from the right, right? So, so it, it can be defensive as well as offensive, but it's always political. And I think what's so jarring to witness and watch from the outside is that this process, which I think probably, to be honest, all journalists also recognise is, is very political. When it was the Labour left in charge, this was a reason why this party could not form a government, you know, we could not possibly tolerate a party which has politicized disciplinary processes entering government. When it's the Labour right, we're like, well, it's just this is how parties work, isn't it? Like, it, it is unbelievably jarring. As I say, I try not to think about it too much because I don't want to go mad. There's lots of interesting things going on in the world beyond the, the hypocrisy and the credulousness and the sort of shameless two-facedness of the British political media um, that, I, <laughs> that, that, I, that I try not to overthink this. But it is make no mistake, galling, disgusting, hypocritical, and I think profoundly undemocratic how this was used as a mechanism to completely forestall the possibility of a left-wing government that challenged vested interests in this country and now is completely swept under the rug when you have a centrist, um, centrist Labour Party. Centrist, now you have a centrist Labour Party who wants to enter government and doesn't pose any threat to establishment powers. Next and final story. Many people who use Twitter have seen the platform become increasingly unworkable since Elon Musk took it over last year. The site's functionality has massively decreased, making it, in many ways, less useful and less fun too. And it's well known that Musk reinstated banned Twitter accounts of far-right groups, professional misogynists and serial bullies, all in the name of free speech. That's a story the BBC is only just catching up on. They published an article by their disinformation and social media correspondent, Mariana Spring, with this headline. Twitter insiders, we can't protect users from trolling under Musk. It wasn't long before the man himself responded, posting, quite predictably, on Twitter. Sorry for turning Twitter from a nurturing paradise into a place that has dot 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 trolls. Musk followed up with this. Parentheses, brackets, real article from organization calling itself BBC. I guess Musk's point is that Twitter has always had trolls, and that's reasonably fair. But it's not completely clear that Musk actually read the article he's commenting on. It's a precursor to a panorama documentary about Twitter under his 
ownership. And while it does focus on the rise of abusive comments on the platform following mask, sa mask sacking rather, of thousands of employees, it also uncovers some more sinister gaps in Twitter's security, ones that have very real offline effects. Spring spoke to Ray Serrato, who left Twitter shortly after Musk's takeover. He was part of a 24-person team trying to tackle state-sponsored attempts to influence elections and undermine democracy. That's a notion Musk seemed to care a lot about when he ran this poll about free speech and Twitter last year, even suggesting that an unregulated Twitter was essential to democracy. But perhaps not anymore. This is Mariana Springs talking to Serrato about the work he did at Twitter. How frequently were you identifying these kinds of suspicious activities? Daily. I, 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 don't, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that team did that work daily. Does that team still exist at Twitter? It exists in a minimized capacity. There are a number of like key experts that are no longer in that team that would have covered um, special regions or threat actors um, from Russia to China. Influence operations are not going to stop. In fact, one can, can reasonably suspect that they will increase given, given that it's public knowledge that the team has been uh, um, decim decimated. Another issue that has dogged Twitter for years is the prevalence of images depicting child sexual exploitation as well as the presence of paedophiles who use the platform to groom children. Panorama spoke to a former Twitter employee who worked to put an end to it. This former employee, who we're calling Rory, used to work in a team tasked with preventing child sexual exploitation and reporting offenders to the police. We are talking of actual contact abuse or, you know, people um, sharing the the worst of the worst material. How prevalent was that kind of material on Twitter? How much of a problem was it? Oh, it was phenomenally prevalent. Every day you, you would be able to identify that sort of material. Elon Musk has said he's committed to tackling this kind of content. Removing child exploitation is priority number one. Please reply in comments if you see anything that Twitter needs to address. But after the takeover, Rory says his team was drastically cut. You can't go from a team of 20 to a team of about six or seven and be able to keep on top of the child sexual exploitation problem on the platform. Did Musk ever speak directly to, to you and your team? No. Did you receive any communications from him? No. From the management? No. Why do you think that is? Who knows? But you can't take over a company and suddenly believe you have the knowledge of being able to deal with child sexual exploitation without having the experts in place. Twitter says it removed 400,000 accounts in one month alone to help make Twitter safer. But Rory's worried that some users are no longer being reported to the police. You can, by all means, suspend hundreds of thousands of accounts in a month. Most of the users who had their accounts suspended would just set up a new account anyway. So it wasn't unusual to see people saying, this is my fifth, sixth, seventh plus account. They will be aware of what's going on. So they'll be having a field day. Last month, the New York Times ran a story with this headline, Musk pledged to cleanse Twitter of child abuse content. 
it's been rough going. Child sexual abuse imagery spreads on Twitter even after the company is notified. One video drew 120,000 views. Sewer rats, as one regulator described, bad actors remain. The Twitter claims to have made huge progress in eliminating this material from the platform, a claim the New York Times decided to test out. It reports this. To assess the company's claims of progress, the Times created an individual Twitter account and wrote an automated computer program that could scour the platform for content without displaying the actual images, which are illegal to view. The material wasn't difficult to find. In fact, Twitter helped promote it through its recommendation algorithm, a feature that suggests accounts to follow based on user activity. That is crazy. Among the recommendations was an account that featured a profile picture of a shirtless boy. The child in the photo is a known victim of sexual abuse, according to the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, which helped identify exploitative material on the platform for The Times by matching it against a database of previously identified imagery. That same user followed other suspicious accounts, including one that had liked a video of boys sexually assaulting another boy. By January 19th, the video, which had been on Twitter for more than a month, had gotten more than 122,000 views, nearly 300 retweets, and more than 2,600 likes. Twitter later removed the video after the Canadian Centre flagged it for the company. One account in late December offered a discounted Christmas pack of photos and videos. That user tweeted a partly obscured image of a child who'd been abused from about age eight through adolescence. Twitter took down the post five days later, but only after the Canadian Centre sent the company repeated notices. Michael, do the likes of the BBC and New York Times give Twitter a fair crack of the whip? After all, these are commercial rivals to an extent. And I have to say, I'm not the biggest fan of BBC Panorama after its performance in recent years, but these are very, very serious claims, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we, you know, we've criticised a previous Panorama episode for taking many claims at face value and not really sort of assessing what people's ulterior motives might be um, for for what they say and, and why they're trying to get across a particular sort of image of the events which have taken place, which, you know, in that case, I mean, I'll stop beating around the bush. We're talking about that is Labour anti-Semitic um, documentary where, I mean, at least I felt watching it that there wasn't enough corroboration of what people were saying and there wasn't enough investigation into why people might be saying the things that they were saying that were not purely that they'd witnessed this, but rather that they had some um, political intentions um, or some political prejudices, let's say. Now, on on this documentary, I'm, 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 I'm not sure. I think we have enough objective evidence in front of us that we don't need to have to rely on anyone's testimony when it comes to the fact that Elon Musk is an idiot and he is terribly, terribly placed to run Twitter. Now, I've, there's so many things to mention about this story. I think just to, just to get it off my chest, it's a, the thing that's sort of floating at the top of my head is, is how often the Elon Musks of the world and all of the people in his coterie have been going on and on and on about paedophilia and child abuse. And every time they mention it is because they're concerned about drag queens reading books to children or whatever, right? So, so we we really care about child sexual abuse. Then what do they do? They go massively cut the team, which takes down actual videos of child sexual abuse from Twitter, right? So it's it, it seems to me that that's brought up purely as a cultural narrative to try and you know basically bash on a minority group that you know they they don't like essentially. Um, they're, they're not fans of transgender people, so they'll constantly bring up 
child abuse, even when it's incredibly tenuous, and when the thing that they could actually do to prevent child abuse, which is to have some regulation on their platform, is something they're very unwilling to do. I mean, what to say about Elon Musk is very interesting. I mean, I I have been, I mean, people have seen on this show before, I've been someone who says, I, I do think that clearly he was a man of certain talents. You know, SpaceX is an impressive company. Tesla, impressive company. People say, yes, he was born with a silver spoon, but there are lots of people who were born with a silver spoon who don't build a company like SpaceX or a company like Tesla. I think what's become apparent at this point, though, is that there couldn't really be a worse placed person to take over a social media company because this is a guy who doesn't really have social skills. Like he, 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 He's not someone who has a good understanding of what makes a social media platform pleasant to use for anyone but a small minority of his sort of far-right edgelords who want it to be a bit of a hellscape, right? So I, I can't think of any sort of, I, I know, so the optimists about Elon Musk were sort of saying, I think the big problem that Twitter has isn't necessarily about regulation, it's regulation and sort of censorship that we talk about all the time. The real problem is engineering. I haven't noticed any engineering improvements the guy has made, right? If, if anything, Twitter has got harder to use, not just sort of on a political or a, is it nice they're more troll sense, but just it's more difficult to use. It, it, it breaks all the time. And that's because, and I suppose you can see why this would happen. You come from a company like SpaceX and Tesla, where you're literally, I mean, with SpaceX, you're, you're literally sending rockets into space. And you look at this social media app and you think, how difficult can this be? You know, obviously, I understand everything and I can understand any, everything just by reading a few blogs and then I'll get Twitter. Turned out it wasn't that simple. And now the whole thing is crumbling around him. Uh, are BBC and NYT being a bit harsh on him? I mean, he very publicly has this sort of notion, this concept that society is divided between sort of the meritocratic doers and then this sort of liberal mediocre blob. And I think he very much thinks that the liberal mediocre blob is made of sort of like the NYT and the BBC. And then the the sort of very talented doers are um, well, Elon Musk. Obviously, I think he thinks he's, 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 he's the king of that. Um, and then, I mean, apparently certain sort of right-wing YouTubers on Twitter who he seems big, big fans of. Um, and, but I mean, I think it's a naff ideology. I, I think if, it, if, if there was any truth as to sort of like the liberal groupthink that you get in certain institutions, the idea that that's sort of shaping the world and what it's doing is holding down these incredibly sort of adventurous, um, intelligent, usually always men um, from achieving because people are jealous of them. That's kind of his worldview. And he seems to have brought that to this social media company. And the, the result is just a sort of embarrassing chaos explosion. I mean, I, I hope I'm being fair to all parties here. Yeah, what you said about the, um, the double standard is really, really crucial. So you've got people like Elon Musk who say, we can't have children being told stories, nursery stories, children's stories by somebody who's dressed up in drag. It's not safe. But I've had an experience many times on Twitter. I'll search a word like a trending football hashtag or a footballer's name if there's a game on because it's interesting, porn comes up. Like naked images of men and women come up. Or he talks about removing the trolls. I've never had more fake accounts DMing me of like naked naked women and like quite, you know, adult content. Protect the kids from that, Elon. You can actually have control over that. If a child, an eight or nine year old child, word searches something on Twitter and then they're confronted with people having sex, you can do something about that. Just a thought. But like you say, Michael, there's not really any points in the culture war. Uh, that's enough for tonight. Matt, thanks, Michael Walker, for joining me. We should get you on more often. 
I thought you almost going to call me Matt Hancock there, but I think you were just com- combining Michael with Thanks. I'd prefer that option. Well, like I say, we should get you on more often. I don't know this guy, but he's very, very good. And on a more serious note, Michael will be back tomorrow night on this channel live from 6 p.m. So do come back then. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.